Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I um, want to say a special word of Happy Mother's Day to my bride right over here of, of our four children. I also want to say Happy Mother's Day to my mom, Tina, in Lafayette, and then my mother-in-law, Alicia, in Lake Charles. So love you both. Um, happy Mother's Day to you that are in this room this morning. And this morning, I want to invite us to all turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And I, I, I want to say we are going to be speaking about a mother. Um, and so this is a, a Mother's Day sermon, if you will. But, but, but what I don't want us to do is to fall into what I think sometimes is kind of a tendency where we take a, a biblical character, um, and this morning we're going to be looking at Mary, and then from her say, so moms, this is how you ought to be. Um, I think that, that that's an easy tendency for us to fall into. And while there's certainly going to be some aspects about mother, that Mary as a mother that would be worth emulating, her, especially her faithfulness to her son, even um, at his crucifixion, um, that's not the point of, of what's going on in the biblical text a lot of times. It's just to show us how we ought to do better. But instead, the Bible is constantly pointing us toward a bigger message, and, and that is this reality of Christ in us and the need for Christ in us. And so that's what we're going to look at today is this reality. So rather than, you know, dads in the room or men in the room, you know, tuning out and saying, well, this is a Mother's Day sermon only applicable for women. No, this is for all of us in Christ that we're going to look at today. But to, to, before we dive into the text and look at where we're going to be today, I want us to, to take a moment and, and I want to set the stage for it. And like two hands holding up something, I want to build two truths or really put on the surface for you to understand two truths that I think are going to hold this passage up for us to look at it the way that we need to look at it today. And the first truth is this, and this is kind of a, more of a, a big reality that comes from the Old Testament, but it's this, God consistently used individual life experiences to communicate spiritual realities. God continuously Used, consistently used individual life experiences, so the things that people went through, in order to communicate a bigger spiritual reality. Realities that would ultimately point toward Christ in many circumstances. So an example of this would be like Abraham and Isaac. So going all the way back to Genesis, and you look at this promise. We just sang about promises of, of this promised son who finally came. And then Abraham is put in this situation where he is instructed to sacrifice his son. Literally to, to put his son to death as a gift to God. And so this is a, a significant trial and difficulty that takes place in Abraham's life. So that's what's going on in his real life. And there's no audience. There's all these things. It's just between he and God and Isaac and a few people that went with them, but then got left behind as they went up for this moment. And so this moment takes place in the Old Testament where, where then God, right in the moment that Abraham is about to kill his son, says, stop. Don't harm him. And then provides um, a, a, an animal caught in the thicket over here to be able to be sacrificed rather than Isaac. But what's significant about that moment, so that's what happens in that moment. And, 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 and that's how the life of Isaac is preserved in that moment. But this is what the writer of Hebrews does. So Hebrews is over in the New Testament. So understand thousands of years pass and then the writer of Hebrews looks back and he makes this point in chapter 11. That in that moment, that Abraham was truly believing that, that God would be able to raise the dead. That, that in that moment, that's what was happening. 
is that Abraham was able to look past death itself, even the death of this promised son, to the resurrection, believing that God could do that. And that, that faith was what it was at work in him. And God, seeing this faith and this belief, you know, credited it to him as righteousness. And this is this important reality that Paul develops throughout the New Testament. But what's significant is that this moment, this experience of Abraham was putting on display what would ultimately be the reality of the need for faith in a resurrected son. And that that was the, a bigger spiritual truth that was going on there, even though in that moment it just felt like a man being tested of whether he would give his son to God or not. So there's this moment of, of, of God using this life experience for a much bigger spiritual reality. Let me give you another example. Fast forward hundreds, thousands of years after Abraham, you get to another man, a prophet in Israel named Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel is instructed to lay on his side, like literally lay on his side for a period of 390 days. And each of those days is to represent a year of judgment that is coming from God against the people of Israel because of their sin. And so his life experience was going to be laying on his side. But the spiritual truth, and laying on his side for a long time, but the spiritual truth that was on display was God's judgment. In other words, the relationship that Israel was to have with God or that they had with God was being put on display with this one man and in this one act of laying on his side and facing away from a certain object. I mean, like all of the elements were, were significant in communicating this big spiritual reality. God consistently using individual life experiences, even the physical body itself to communicate a larger spiritual reality that impacted all people. So that's one truth. The other truth is this. It's found in Colossians chapter, chapter 1, verse 27, and it says this. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, what Paul is making clear in this moment, seemingly a passing, is that this remains one of the greatest realities, what he would call a mystery. Not meaning that we can't figure it out and we have no clue what it means, but instead that it's just that incredible. Like that what he's talking about is so deep and so huge, and so amazing that it remains this, this mystery that's meant to set us in awe. And that awe-inspiring mystery is Christ in you. And the you there is plural, and that's important because we think in individualistic terms like Christ in me. And while that is true, we need to maintain the corporate reality that Paul is speaking to the church. And he's saying, this is the mystery, Christ in y'all. Christ in you gathered. So that's this other reality that the New Testament again and again and again points to this mystery of Christ in you. So what does that mean? Well, to me what that says with that other truth is that we ought to be grappling with what does it mean for Christ to be in me? What does it mean for Christ to be in us? Are we mining out the riches and the depth of that reality? 
that Paul says is, is the mystery of our faith, that he's wanting everyone to grasp and experience the greatness of this truth, is that Christ is in you. That the, that the, that the Christ of the world, the Messiah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords is in you through his Spirit. And this reality ought to set you in awe and leave you scratching your head and trying to figure out what does this mean? What is this going to look like? How is this possible? And it's with that truth of, of grappling with and saying this is incredible and I want to understand it better. And then this reality that God uses these individual life experiences sometimes to put on display a huge spiritual reality that's good for all people Christ in you, good for all people, illustrated, holding up this one truth of Luke chapter 1 in a virgin named Mary. I want you to consider those two truths as we then look at this text. Not looking at it just as a moral lesson for how moms ought to be good moms or even just dry history, not meant to illustrate anything else. It's just kind of a record. But instead, that it is supposed to do both. That this one life experience is putting on display something of a reality that is going to be for all people. And it is communicating to us something of the mystery of Christ in us. So, with those two truths in place, I want you to stand for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 26. And read down through verse 56 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement and wondered what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne over of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, of, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generations on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts in their, of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. We pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that through the preaching of your word that we will consider how you use this one life experience of this one young lady named Mary, a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of David's house in an obscure place at a time that no one expected anything great to come from in order to put on display Captured in your word, this reality, this spiritual reality that would be ours in Christ. And so, God, we ask now that as we consider and we celebrate and we desire to live in the greatness of the truth that Christ is in us through the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be more conformed into his image, be, to be made like Christ in every way today by bringing our lives and our hearts into conformity with your word. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I've pared down my sermon because there were so many correlations that I could have noted I started off with seven, and today I've ended with three that I want us to consider as we hold up this truth that Mary's life in this moment of, of this interchange with, with the angel Gabriel and this reality of her being the mother of Jesus, of her womb being the womb in which he would gestate and grow and then be birthed from, that this truth was meant to be put was meant to put on display a spiritual reality that we need to consider today and the reality that for many, if not most of you in this room right now, you would say, if asked, are you a, a Christian? You would say, yes. If, if asked, is Jesus Christ Lord? Yes. Is Jesus the Savior of the world? Yes. Your confession would be in order. But for many of us, we struggle to then experience the greatness of this truth that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit such that Paul says, Christ is in you. And we struggle with it because of the way that we treat one another. And we struggle with it because of the way that we still live many times as though we were slaves to sin rather than slaves to righteousness. So we need this. Every mom in this room needs this greatness of Christ in you. Every dad in this room needs the greatness of Christ in you. Every man and woman in this room needs the greatness of this truth of Christ in you to be experienced. And every teenager and every child in this room needs the greatness of this truth of Christ in you to be experienced. So let us consider from Mary's life 
and her experience, some of what I believe her life illustrates of the biblical truths that we see throughout the scriptures, because her life does illustrate so much. First of all, we see this. Mary's experience illustrates the essence of salvation. Mary's experience illustrates the essence of salvation, which is this, grace. Grace, undeserved love. Now, I want to quickly say, because of the context that we find ourselves in, in New Orleans, really in South Louisiana in particular, in a, in a culture where there's many, many Catholics. You may be here today as a guest, and you are part of the, the Roman Catholic Church. I want to thank you for being with us this morning and, and noting some of the distinctions of what we're going to consider today from what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I want to simply say to you and to all of us that what we should most long for than anything else is to be faithful to God's Word. That, that what it says is true. And where it stops, it stops for a good reason. And that we can trust that what the Scriptures teach in all of their teaching is not simply sufficient, it's abundantly sufficient. It's, it's more than enough for, for us to rightly understand the story of Mary and to rightly understand the, the reality of God's greatness and of the story of the gospel and what it means to trust Christ and then to live a full life in Christ and for Christ to live in us. So, so I'm going to make some distinctions today, and I don't mean to offend, but I do want to be factual in stating a few things. So this first truth of Mary's experience that, that illustrates the essence of salvation is grace. Now look at it in the text, first of all. Notice that when the angel comes to her in verse 28, the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now note that prior to this moment in the text, there is no account nor is there any other account in the New Testament about Mary's life. We're not told that she lived a sinless life and therefore had merited or earned God's favor, such that, that of course she's favored because she's without sin. There's no detail about her life except for this, that she was favored. And what's significant here, and we need to be careful that we don't put too much weight on grammar alone with the words, but it is significant that the grammar of this word right here in this verse, in verse 28, is a passive participle. In other words, God is the one acting on Mary. God is the one who is giving her favor. And that's how grace works. You see, if, if you earn it, it's no longer grace. It's a wage. And the only thing that you and I have earned in this life is death. Because the Bible teaches that the wages, the consequence of sin is death. That's what we've earned. But the gift of God, the verse continues, is eternal life. In other words, it's grace. And so when we turn to this word and it says, Greetings, favored woman. God, in his grace, undeserved love, is saying, I have chosen you for this specific task. And what we wrestle with and what many in church history that's kind of captured in a lot of Roman Catholic teaching is that there had to have been something about Mary 
that warranted her being chosen for this thing. And so what's come from that is a teaching about Mary that when she was conceived in her mother's womb, God acted in such a way as to preserve her from any effect of sin so that Mary was also born without sin. There was no sin in her, and that's the only way that we could get to a sinless Jesus was because he had a sinless father, God, and a sinless mother, Mary. Now listen, we can see how those things add up, but remember, we're leaning into the sufficiency of God's word to say, well, what does it have to say in all that it communicates? And listen, this is good news for all of us, is he says, greetings, favor given freely, grace given woman. He greets her in this way. That's good news for people that don't deserve grace, right? That's your story. That's mine. I don't deserve to ever hear greetings favored man. But yet in his grace, in his undeserved love, he has set his favor upon me and caused Christ to come and dwell within me. It's repeated. Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled at this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And the word favor there is again grace, charis. It's grace. You have found grace with God. And that idea of found is an active verb. But what's important maybe to understand there is that Mary was one who wanted the grace of God. Mary was probably one because of what she says over at the end here where she says, has looked on the, on, the, on the humble condition of your servant who had the understanding that she was one in need of grace. Let me ask you, do you realize that you're in need of grace? Do you have an elevated view of yourself? That the only reason you need God is when you finally can't do something? That, that you can do a ton of stuff, but boy, when that little gap comes in and it appears, it's like, well, gosh, maybe I need to even pray now. Maybe I, maybe I do need God's help. You see, Mary puts on display the humility of one that Jesus would note later, who, not even being able to look to heaven, beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. Mary had that kind of heart, one who was seeking the grace of God and who found it, who found it. God freely giving his grace to her, the essence of our salvation. You see, when we talk about the three circles and we talk about communicating the gospel as a church. We talk about the reality that we are in our brokenness and we are in our sin, but that wasn't God's design. And as much as we try to get back to God's design on our own, we can't. But what we need to be reminded of, church, is that there was no way that we could get back and there wasn't anything in us that deserved a way back. We constantly elevate ourselves and that we deserve. We deserve something. We, we, we deserve a way back. We, de, we deserve something from God. That we, we deserve to have heard the gospel. We, we deserve to, the right to be able to make the choice for ourselves. We, we, we deserve 
That is not the heart that we see in Mary. Mary's was one who sought the favor of God, the grace of God. Let me encourage you, have that same heart, not that we see in Mary, but that we see in Christ, who taking on the form of a servant, humbled himself and became obedient, even death on a cross. The heart of a humble servant. That's what we see in Mary, but ultimately that's what we see in Christ Jesus, our King. And so Mary, first of all, puts on display her life experience illustrating the essence of salvation, which is grace. God, in his grace, choosing her. And then her responding in praise. Second, Mary's experience illustrates the greatness of the unseen Christ within us. I want you to, to ponder with me for a moment the reality that was Mary's. That, that literally the Lord Jesus would be in her womb. Now, here's what we tend to do, right? We tend to make a bigger deal out of the physical than the spiritual, right? We, we, we often will do that. So let me ask you this. Is it a bigger deal that Jesus incarnate as a zygote and an embryo, and then as a baby, you know, a fetus growing in the womb, is it more significant that Christ was in Mary in that way or that Christ is in you? In this moment, by his Holy Spirit, which is more significant? That's a question to ponder. That's a question to wrestle with. That's a question to push back on your own thinking because you likely if you're like me, elevate Mary's experience. You say, well, I mean, come on, Chad. I mean, like, that's, that's really something. Christ was in her. Like, literally, she was carrying around Jesus in her womb. But then Christ was delivered. Christ was born. And then Christ was no longer within her. And the truth that Jesus has uttered to you and to me is I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I will be with you until the end of the age. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's what we're longing for. Is this union with Christ that will exceed anything of any human relationship that we can understand. The closest thing that Paul grabs at is marriage. And he tries to, to communicate this relationship of Christ and the church between husband and wife in Ephesians chapter 5. And he says, you know, I'm talking about this, but this, this mystery. He uses that same word again. You know, talk, the, the mystery I'm talking about is, is Christ and the church. But he's saying, I'm trying to get you there. I'm trying to help you understand. And I believe that God, to help us to help the church for 2,000 years now to understand the greatness of Jesus in us is he put Jesus in her. And the, and the reverence that we would have if Mary, pregnant with Jesus, walked into the room with the understanding that we have now of his greatness is the same reverence and awe that we ought to have for one another. That there ought to be that sort of a regard for one another. I mean, can you imagine if pregnant Mary came in, you'd be like, Mary, you know, let me get you a chair. James is pretty clear that we often do the, oh, let me get you a chair for rich people, but, but not for the poor. And he indicts us because we play favorites. But 
But what he's calling us to is this reverence for treating one another for the reality that is ours, is Christ is in you. And the greatness of the king is in you. Now, this is important because right now you could buy about 1,000, maybe 10,000 books that talk about the greatness that's within you, independent of Jesus. That, that in you is just this unbelievable amount of greatness just waiting to be mined out. And people are making billions of dollars telling us this. But this is free. Greater is he who's within you than he who is in the world. In other words, the greatness is not about how great you become, but how great the one within you is. I mean, look, look how it's described here in Luke. He says, don't be afraid. And then he goes on to say, beginning in verse 32, he will be great. He will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. I mean, this is the greatness of Christ in you. And so I just wanna ask just for a moment for you to consider your life experience right now, is Christ great in you? Is his greatness on display in your life? I mean, we would have expected Mary, right? Looking at her life experience for her to conduct herself in such a way that she's carrying around the greatness of Jesus within her. Are you treating your body that same way? I mean, Paul makes these arguments about what we do with our body. Our physical body matters. I mean, can you imagine if Mary had put things into her body that would have been harmful to, to baby Jesus? And yet, we forget that Christ is in us. And therefore, this is now a temple belonging to God Almighty. And so therefore, I would be very concerned what I do with this body what I put into it, where I send it, where I go, what I think about. This body doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to the greatness of the one who indwells me by his Holy Spirit. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Is he ruling and reigning over every part of your life right now? You see, I find that in my own life, I have to come to small surrenders again and again and again. I have to stop and say, Lord, I, it's been a minute since I surrendered my finances to you. I did it at one point. I said, Jesus is Lord, and I put this on the altar, but then I, I started to pull it back. I, I gave Jesus my children, but then I start to, to go about life again as though they, they were mine, my possessions, you know, that, that I'm the one that owns them. Rather than realizing they don't belong to me, I've been stewarded. I've been entrusted with their care to shepherd their hearts and their lives, but they don't belong to me. And so then to fresh give my, my children to Jesus again and say they belong to you. You sustain them. You created them. They're for your glory, not mine. Not to show how great I am, what a great dad I am. They're, ultimately, their lives are to be putting you on display, God. So help me to do parenting in that way that results in that end. My marriage, my time, what I watch for entertainment, 
I mean, all of these areas of our lives that take up so much of our lives, have we freshly surrendered them to the rule and the reign of Jesus? And is it obvious? Is it obvious that as you consider death itself, that you believe that you are indwelt by a king whose rule and reign will never end? So, if you've been buried with Christ and therefore raised with him, then even if you taste of death for a moment, it no longer has the victory. You can sing the song with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? And taunt death because you know that you have everlasting life. Is it obvious as you keep going in this life that you trust that there is a great one within you, that King Jesus is within you, that he is able in every circumstance that you come up against in order to lead you in wisdom, in order to shepherd your heart, in order to provide calm in the storm, to give you wisdom and prudence in all things. Are you living that life where the greatness of the one within you is seen and experienced by you and by those around you? You see, I love the story, how it's captured that when Mary enters the home of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, in the womb, leapt in the womb. I mean, that sort of joy ought to be in the body as we experience one another. I mean, isn't that one of the sweetest things that you've ever experienced? That when you're somewhere else and you come into proximity with another believer, that there is this leaping within you that you're, you're I felt, this is my brother, this is my sister, I, and I I. I feel the spirit within me rejoicing over the, the presence of Christ within this person and then the bond that immediately is established. I mean, that has happened so many times in world missions. When I, when I meet a brother in Lesotho or in Kenya for the first time and then, and then experience the joy with, with them, it just undoes me. It brings the deepest sense of connection and of, and of family relationship because of that. And it also has brought the greatest depth of sorrow when they face persecutions of various kinds. Why is that? Why does what they're going through matter to me and, and what we're going through here? Because, because we are united under this one King Jesus and, and, and the spirit that bonds us is deeper than anything else that happens in this life. Oh, parents, long for the spirit of God to be poured into your children that they would become brothers and sisters and not just children to you. Long, long for that. Long for the grace of God. Seek it, as Mary did, for your children. And then finally, I want us to see how Mary's experience illustrates the worshipful, joyful response of all believers. Look what she does. She goes through and says, first of all, may it be to me according to your word. You know how Jesus taught us to pray? Not my, not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. He then modeled for us the prayer in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. And Mary says it here, may it be to me according to your word. That's the response of every believer. 
Lord, may it be to me according to your word. As you turn to God's word this week and you open it up, and I, that's my longing is that every one of us will be in God's word on a regular basis, but start off this way, not end, but start with this. Lord, before I open your word, God, may it be to me according to your word. Would you conform me into the image of your son through your word and then going into your word? I mean, that was, that was the message of faith that was on display with Mary. But then look what she does. Look how she rises up and prays. It says, and Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Quick reminder, if she's sinless, she doesn't need a Savior. Mary was one in need of Jesus, just as you and I are. And Mary was one who experienced the grace, undeserved love of God in him choosing her for Christ to dwell in her. And that's your story in mind, that in grace, God has chosen, God has chosen to give you and I, Christ, to be within us. Because he has looked with favor, there it is again, with grace, undeserved love on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. I'm convinced that the desert that we are in, both as a local church in New Orleans, but, but larger than that is, is really a church in the West, is this, his worshipers. There's people that love good music. There's people that love you know, these concerts and things like that. But, but there was no music playing in this moment. Mary didn't say, you know, like, Alexa, tune into life songs. From her soul, I mean, from the depth of her being, just bubbled up worship. She just began to worship the Lord. And we've conditioned ourselves again and again and again that, that we have to have something else to worship. But she's in the living room, most likely, in, in this one-room home, maybe, just standing there with her aunt, who's advanced in age, who's got a baby in her womb, who's leaping. And then she just begins to worship the Lord. I encourage you, parents, don't dress it up. Don't make it fancier than it needs to be, but, but worship the Lord with your children. If, if you're a single adult in this room today, I encourage you, get together with your friends who are believers and just worship. Just, just spend time, say, hey, would y'all like to get together to just like spend some time in the Word and just worship. Just worship the Lord. And I'm not saying you can't turn on life songs, but I'm saying don't make worship so dependent on these other things that it doesn't just rise up out of you like it did Mary. Let, let it be that we become a worshiping community so that like Mary, our soul praises the greatness of the Lord and our spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he's looked on us with favor on the humble condition of his servants because surely all generations will call us blessed because of Jesus, because the mighty one has done great things for us and his name is holy. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. We just sang about those promises. 
And those promises, almost like a first fruit, were fulfilled and illustrated with this young woman named Mary and this baby. But it is a truth that is illustrated for our good to return again to the goodness of the gospel. And I want to remind you this morning that you and I, we are born into brokenness and sin in this world. And I probably don't have to take a lot of time to convince you that we, we're born into brokenness. And, and not only are we born into a broken, sinful world, but we are broken, sinful people. But that wasn't God's design. That's not how God created us to be. When God made everything, the design that he had was a perfect relationship with him and a perfect relationship with one another. And he said, it's very good. But somehow we got from that very good design to this broken world filled with broken, sinful people. And the Bible says it's because sin entered the world, me going my way, essentially saying, may it not be to me according to your word. That your word, you say this, I'm going to do this. And ever since then, we've been trying to do life according to our word, to our wisdom. But God in his grace did something, and that's this. He sent Jesus, who lived a perfect life, whose, whose birth are coming to be incarnate. We, we've just read about here. But at the end of that perfect, sinless life, he died for you and me to pay the price for our sin. He died for Mary, and he died for you. He was then buried because sin had been dealt with. It was done. But to show the world that his son had defeated sin and death, he raised him from the grave. He was seen by many witnesses. He ascended into heaven with the promise that one day he is going to return. And that day will be a final day. There won't be extra time to then say, oh, I guess I should have dealt with this sooner. That will be it. The Bible teaches that today, if you will acknowledge your sin and your need for grace. Just like Mary, just a humble heart. God, I need your grace. I don't deserve your grace, but I need it. I need your grace. And I trust that Jesus is the only way I can get it, that then you become a new creation and you begin to grow into God's design for your life. And so my question to every one of you in this room is, are you near God's design because you have trusted and followed Jesus? Or are you far from God in your brokenness. You're, you're trying to get back to God on your own. The reality is, that is to say, I'll do it my way. Rather than, God, thank you for making a way through your son that I could be restored and be made whole. When I was 16, I prayed a prayer like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And so I ask for your forgiveness today. And I give you my life. I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me and to bring me into your kingdom. And I want Jesus to be the king of my life. And that day, a fresh wind blew upon this hard heart. And I was born again because I believed. I trusted. I needed the grace. And he gave it. Is that you today? I want to invite everyone in this room to stand. We're going to sing in response to God's word this morning, but maybe you're here today and what you need more than anything is to give your life to Jesus. I invite you to come forward at this time. I would love to share with you and to pray with you in this moment. So you respond now as God 
leads you.